Hello, my fellow Westorians. Greetings and welcome back to our occasional Saturday live streams. We have an excellent episode planned today. We are finishing up the awesome Nine Penny Kings War, which we got started a few weeks ago and covered a lot of the backstory, a lot of the characters, a lot of the preparations for war, the setup in terms of politics and how all the Band of Nine came together. We talked about the strange and interesting Tree of Crowns, whatever the heck that is. We talked about the unusual, to put it mildly, Melee's the Monstrous. So with me, as always, is Ashea. And returning for part two, because he was such a big part of part one, is Stephen Atwell. Hey, Stephen. Welcome back. Hello. Right on. So tell, uh, remind everybody again about your excellent blog and pod, Race for the Iron Throne. Sure. So I write at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com, where I go chapter by chapter through uh, Song of Ice and Fire. I also do some other essays. I've just started uh, my run through of Duncan Egg, for example. Nice. And relevant. And <laughs> Yes, uh, very relevant. Uh, I also just in general write about sort of the intersection of history, politics, and pop culture. Uh, you can also find uh, my stuff at um, Twitter at Stephen Atwell or um, on Tumblr at Rage for the Throne as well. Cool. Right on. Yes. Very, very uh, highly recommend checking that out, y'all. And let's uh, let's get to it. A couple of patrons to shout out. But, uh, of course, we have our wonderful uh, History of Westeros' first sword. That's Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper. And we have Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, the red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. Would have been useful for Melees to have a dragon, but that's why this was a tough conflict. No side had dragons. Dragons have been gone for a while. We This, of course, is part two. Part one was released about a month ago, I suppose. So hopefully you check that out. But if you didn't, it's not a big deal to catch this one first. The, the information is all, it's better taken in part one first, but this stuff is really good on its own. We covered a lot of the events there. Now, we've, we've just recently released uh, House Blackwood Part 1. It's our first scripted episode in a while, so if you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend it. And let's get to it. We left off with just before, just the outbreak of war, really, where we have uh, the Band of Nine beginning to make their first moves, beginning to start their conquest plans. And that really uh, starts with the taking of three main places, the, the Stepstones, Tyrosh, and the Disputed Lands. And it's funny to think about the Disputed Lands. What a name, right? I mean, yeah. I wonder if the locals call it that. It's, yeah, I live in the Disputed Lands. <laughs> so it's kind of a conundrum because it's fought over so much that it's surely war-torn. On the other hand, it's got to be worth fighting over a little bit. It must be some reason to to hold it. There must be some value to it. And Tyrosh has been fighting it over for centuries. What do you think about the disputed lands in general? What do you think their the benefit to the Band of Nine was? This is something where I I I don't know. I go back and forth on, and I, I think that I'm somewhat in disagreement with George R. R. Martin because he he sometimes refers to the the disputed lands as Desolate. Okay. That doesn't make a lot of sense because no Renaissance city state was able to feed itself. Mm. Right? They all required an agricultural hinterland. And 
that's territory that would be worth fighting over, right? They are also mostly run by merchant princes. So you tend to have a more kind of um, economic motivation for war, right? You know, why, if the land is worthless, why fight over the land? Why not just go straight for your opponent's city? You know, and the thing that always makes me think in terms of like, what would people say is if they are very, right, if the lands are very disputed, if the borders flow back and forth, it must be very hyper-local. Right, you'd say like I live in this village because you might not know on a year-to-year basis. Am I part of Tyrosh? Right? Am I part of Lys? Am I part of Mir? You know, that might change many times in in the course of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. So, regardless of what was what happened, what what actual value it has, they they certainly took it and. Uh, held it for a little while, at least. I suppose they probably lost it before the end. I think the last thing they ended up losing was Tyrosh itself. Yeah, but that was six years later. So they yes. may have held it for several years. Yeah, that's true. Which probably in, in terms of the disputed lands, a few years is probably really long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably uh, usually doesn't get held for very long at a time. Now, moving onward, so they took the disputed lands, however they did, and for whatever value that held for them, which which sets up the taking of Tyrosh. We talked about this a little bit, I think, and how they did this. There's there's some potential for them having taken it internally, like setting up a, a coup, or it may have been more of a straight invasion. It's hard to say. Let's, uh, let's take a quick quote about Tyrosh here, and then we'll discuss some of these possibilities. Tyrosh, an altogether harder city, began as a military outpost, as its inner walls of fused black dragonstone testify. Valyrian records tell us the fort was raised initially to control shipping passing through the Stepstones. Not long after the city's founding, however, a unique variety of sea snail was discovered in the waters off the bleak, stony island where the fortress stood. Now that unique variety of sea snail is the is a real-world parallel to the Tyrian purple found in uh, Tyre, which is uh, called royal purple by a lot of people. It's... Uh, it's, it's super, super expensive. It's hard to fathom how expensive dyes were in that era and how much money it made for the Tyrians. And the equivalent is almost certainly true here. You can yeah. see it in their culture. The Tyrashi dye their beards and their... Hair and everything. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's pretty wild. So this, is, uh, this maybe doesn't sound like something that would make huge amounts of money, but it made huge amounts of money. Almost certainly the case for Tyrosh as well. So you can see why they wanted it. It was a wealthy city. And it was also positioned on the Stepstones. In fact, it was originally designed to control trade in the Stepstones uh, by the Valyrians. So <laughs> it would make sense that someone else would want to suborn it for the same purpose. And that is exactly what happened. And it's also the city most associated with the Blackfires. Damon's wife, a.k.a. the matriarch of all Blackfires, is Rohan of Tyrosh. Young Griff famously refers to the blue hair he dyes in honor of his mother, which is one of the clues that he's a Blackfire because his, the real mother of all Blackfires was in fact a Tyrosh. Now, of course, or was a Tyrashi. Now, of course, Young Griff is just, that's his cover story. But, you know, that's probably George being playful. Yeah, element as, of truth. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us a little bit about Tyrosh, why they would want it and what kind of value it would give to them, yeah. things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, if they're trying to take the Stepstones, it would be right at their back. Mm-hmm. Right. And 
would, if left alone, be enormously hostile to some new force trying to take over the Stepstones. So you need it for that purpose alone. The second thing is it's a huge port city. So, you know, it gives you a great naval stepping stone to the Stepstones. <laughs> uh, it means that you can have your supply lines operating. You've got somewhere to, to dock your ships before you set out for the Stepstones. It allows for all of that sort of good interior lines of communication. Right on. And then the final thing is, is it was quid pro quo, right? That, you know, what's his name? Alequo had given his support in exchange for Tyrosh. So if they want to keep being financed and they're going up a whole king, you know, going up against a whole kingdom that has feudal taxation that it can draw on and they're just a bunch of mercenaries, they're going to need some sort of finance. Yeah. And I think the the argument that, you know, it was taken from the instone inside is probably right. In fact, given that the the bulk of their forces were cell swords, at least one of their bands might have started as the mercenary army in serve, you know, under contract to Tyrush. Yeah, and the Blackfires were familiar enough in the area. They may have been the Golden Company may have been simply allowed inside. Yeah. Over time, they may have been just a feature of the city. People were used to them coming in. And that may not be the case anymore. They're like, well, we're not letting y'all back in again after yeah. what you did. But this one time before they broke their, broke the, not the contract, of course, but kind yeah. of broke this, uh, this piece, they could have just been like, well, there's 10,000 of us. We're inside the walls and we're going to take this. Yeah. Or maybe they, the army is on the outside. If, if they weren't let inside, it's pretty easy to f- imagine that someone opened a gate for them or they didn't have to pummel yeah, their way it was, in. It was not a, a long siege or a, a bloody assault because they had the entire Stepstones. <laughs> and we know from the history of the war for the Stepstones, that's not easy. Right? Mm-hmm. That, there are a lot of pirates on the Stepstones who are not going to give up without a fight. There's a lot of other, you know, in addition to Lise and Mir, you know, you've got Pentos, you've got Bravos, you've got a lot of interested parties. So you would not want to sort of waste your manpower on this initial siege because then all your momentum is going to be lost. And everyone sees what you're doing. They have time to react. Now, to be clear, I think they probably could have done it if they needed to siege Tyrosh. That would have been interesting. They had two or at least two fleets and all these different sellsword companies. It's not the kind of work sellsword companies are ideal for, but they'll do it. Um, you know, you're paying them so much, but in this case, they'd be paying themselves or, or, you know, doing it on their own. Still definitely agree that it's more likely they took it from the inside. So as far, once they have Tyrosh, like you said, that's a huge base for them. They get to, there's a lot they can do with it. Whether the Golden Company was allowed in before, they certainly are now once they, you know, kind of own it. And with that, they have all sorts of options for, like you said, money, is now somewhat taken care of. They have this huge tax base. They can perhaps, who knows what they're able to get out of the citizens. They probably could have done all kinds of things to extort and ransom. And yeah, the city was probably, it wasn't the best time for Tyrosh probably. Mm. And as far as the Stepstones, yeah, they would probably be, there might be some forcible recruitment maybe, or at least suborning of of goods and and weapons and, and money, if not people. And there's so many slaves in Tyrosh, so that would be another resource that they would probably make use of. Yeah. 
to build, um, maybe to build ships or to work on their weapons or yeah. probably not to fight in their armies, but maybe that too. Well, I yeah, I mean, who knows? That. Like if you're not planning to stick around in Tyrosh, right? This is where the sort of different motives kick in is, you know, who knows if, if Melis the Monstrous particularly cared about like preserving the property rights of Tyrosh's slave masters. <laughs> <laughs> He's got bigger and, and further further afield things on his mind. Yeah. So they move out from Tyrosh to start taking the Stepstones. It's kind of an obvious next step. Of course, like I said, Tyrosh was designed to, in part to help control the Stepstones. So, and it's right there. Now, I wonder what their plan was, though. We know that the short term, they want the Stepstones. It's the next step. But it could easily cross into Dorne from there. But Dorne is not the best base for invading the rest of Westeros. It's a pretty good spot, but it's kind of hard to emerge from those passes into the Reach or the Stormlands because they can kind of see you coming. <laughs> they know there's only two ways you can enter the rest of Westeros. And so that's not necessarily ideal. I wonder if they had plans to maybe invade some of the other islands or, or head straight for King's Landing once they controlled the Stepstones. What do you think the point of the Stepstones was beyond... I mean, as far as a campaign strategy, beyond it being important in the short term, what do you think the next step would have been? So I have uh, a slightly different theory, which is okay. that I think the Stepstones were taken as sort of a trap. Yeah. They wanted... The previous Blackfire rebellions had all failed, in part because they were fighting on enemy territory. Right? So yeah. they're, they're fighting on ground not of their own choosing. And it's much easy for the Westerosi to marshal all of their resources than for the, the Blackfires to marshal theirs. They have longer supply lines. The Westerosi don't. And there's also an interesting thing that happens with speed, which is that we know with both Aegon V and Jaehaerys II that they expected the other SOC powers to deal with them first. Hmm that the, the problem would be taken care of before they got to them. But then things keep happening faster than expected, right? They take the yeah. whole of the disputed lands. They take Tyraj. They take the Stepstones. All of that happens before the Westerosi actually get involved, you know, in, in, the, in the war. And that suggests to me that in part, the Band of Nine are just moving faster than expected. And they're encountering fewer obstacles, right? You know, it probably helps if you have several pirate kings and queens, right? <laughs> Working with you that the pirates of the Stepstones are not going to be as fiercely defensive as they might otherwise be because some of them are on your side to begin with. Yeah, they might join up or be convinced to join. Some of them may have already been considering alliances. Some of them already have already been allies. The Band of Nine may have maybe already had a Stepstone or two given all these pirate lords that were part of the group. So that's not super well-defined. So they may have already had sort of a, a head start. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of interesting, again, because as with the Disputed Lands in Tyrosh, it's another example of something that could easily bog an army down. I mean, we saw mm. the Kingdom of the Three Sisters, right? Their attempts to take the Stepstones took a long time and a lot of investment of manpower. Yes. But the Golden Company do it inside a year. They're um, so much better at it. <laughs> yeah, so they, they're just, they're able to sort of husband their own resources. 
And then when we get to the, the Westerosi intervention, I'll get a little bit more into why I think it was designed as a trap. Cool. Okay, well, let's start off. Let's, let's set the stage a little bit with the Stepstones themselves, a little detail about what they're like and what's going on there in terms of uh, the general outlook rather than before the, the Band of Nine came there. I would say they're generally filled with kind of nasty people. There's, there's, I don't mean like everyone there is evil, but it's, it's a tough place to live. I mean, you got pirates all over the place. You got, it's not part of any nation, so there's not rulers that keep the peace, so to speak. It's, it's, it's up to these pirate lords to keep the peace, and they have less interest in that in general. Uh, so I kind of imagine the commoners there are kind of like the people of Bear Island in a sense that, that everyone learns to fight. They're used mm. to it. It's a way of life that at any minute, any moment, you need to be ready to pick up your spear and defend your, your homeland. And it's often a proving ground for the Ironborn. We yeah. see a lot of references where they just go off and decide to go raid in the Stepstones. And part of that's because it's the closest land that isn't Westeros. They can't, they're not allowed to reeve in Westeros. That doesn't stop them, but you, it, it doesn't always stop them, but it usually stops them. And so they have to go somewhere else. And the Stepstones are full of pirates and people that there's no nation that can get revenge on them. And the Ironborn, the Iron Isles are so far away that no one's going to come after them. So it's kind of a proving ground. They get used to it. They fight. They learn. They, they cut their teeth, et cetera. Yeah. No one and, cares if you steal from thieves. Basically. <laughs> that's, a good, um, yeah, that's a good way to put it's it. It's actually interesting that you bring up the Iron Islands because the Stepstones sort of remind me of like Essos's version of the Iron Islands, right? They're these group of pirates who live on these islands. They you know, attack trade a whole bunch. But they're rather difficult to conquer or hold, you know, maintain control of for very long. Uh, True, and they're, you know, they're slightly kind of other, right? They're a little bit mixed. Mm-hmm. There's people from all of the different, you know, Essosi Islands. There are, you know, we know that there's a bunch of Roinar who live there. Um, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised also if there weren't a whole bunch of people who were Westerosi, right? If you're from Tarthur or what have you, and there's no work for you or whatever, why not go to the Stepstones and see there's an island that you can grab or pirate to to take work on? So I imagine it's very sort of a, a bit like the sort of Caribbean islands during the golden age of piracy. It's this mm, very yeah. sort of cosmopolitan group of independent-minded you know, criminals. In a very uh, Wild West scenario where there's like, there's no law, there's no central authority. Yeah, that's really cool. So we actually have a map here. Uh, It shows not only the different stepstones, but shows just how close it is to Dorne and Tyrosh. That's really useful as a visual aid. Let's talk a little more about what else is going on there and how it relates to other people in Westeros. In in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, there's pockets of Roinar still living there. Back in Nymeria's day, they passed through that area and some of them stayed basically everywhere Nymeria went and then and then picked up and moved again there was a few people that didn't follow there's always a few people that stuck around and and hung out wherever in this different location and the Stepstones is one of those places so like Stephen said it's multicultural they're certainly living on the Stepstones create would I would imagine would create some sort of uh, subculture there because like I said it requires toughness and and survival skills we see several characters pass through there. Uh, the Cinnamon Wind with Sam and Gilly aboard passes through there, and appropriately enough, it's attacked. I mean, it's, it's pirates live there, 
And it's not much of an attack because the cinnamon wind is well, like many swan ships, is very well prepared to deal with pirates, at least small amounts of pirates. You know, if it was like a whole fleet, they might have trouble. But the swan ships are super fast and they have those awesome bows. And I believe that's exactly what happens. They fire a few volleys at the pirates and they're like, never mind, we'll wait for someone weaker to come through. And of course, probably the most famous and unknown character who is probably set up there is the so-called Lord of the Waters who sets up on an island called Torturer's Deep. And the fandom is pretty sure, myself included, that's Orain Waters who made off with Cersei's freshly made war dromans, which were very large warships, 10 of them. And so the good chance he's there. And I have no idea what's going to happen with him, but that's a whole nother topic. Very curious, though, to see what happens with him. For a real life comp, I would call, I would say Sicily is a pretty good example. Now, Sicily is just one island, but it's similar in that it was very, very, very much fought over in ancient times and in, in, in Roman times and Mediterranean. It's the center of the Mediterranean. It has a lot of the same features of the Stepstones in that it's potentially powerful as a trade spot because it's in the uh, unites two large land masses. But that just ends up in, in, instead of being a great trade center. Well, it is a great trade center, but it's also heavily fought over for that same reason. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that comparison? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mediterranean islands in general, right? What, what it reminded me a lot of is Pompey's campaign against the pirates. Oh, yeah. Right. Where, you know, all across the sort of, you know, eastern Mediterranean, central Mediterranean, um, you know, there are all of these little islands, all these little inlets where pirates could thrive uh, because they could sort of, you know, run out, attack, and then sneak off. And then you don't know which little island or inlet they're at. So, you know, it was very difficult to, to sort of deal with the pirates all in one go. And there were attempts to sort of take some of the bigger islands, like Crete or what have you. Um, but, you know, they would just sort of move on to the next cove down the road. Like, yeah, they're very mobile. Took, yeah, exactly. And it took Ptolemy sort of taking this enormous fleet and sort of using it as a broom across the Mediterranean going west to east, where he just wouldn't allow them to double back on him. And he just sort of kept squeezing them and squeezing them into a smaller area that they were able to be defeated. Do you think maybe that's what the the Band of Nine was trying to do here? Maybe kind of go start with the first step stone and kind of move their way west and lock it all down and create supply lines and all that. You think that yeah, was part of their goal? It's, it's possible. It could, you know, they could have done the sort of the Island hopping strategy of, of the Pacific theater and world war two, or it could be that they managed to sort of roll up the whole stepstone hmm. in one go in part because they did have, you know, friends, friends on the inside. And they may have hoped to, they may have hoped to cut Westerosi support from itself to maybe keep the, anything coming from the south to be able to reach the north. If you could keep the ships bottled up below Dorne, that might uh, be a good strategic objective to keep help from yeah, coming it, around it would, and would getting make King's it, Landing, for example. Yeah, it would make it extremely difficult for, say, the Westerlands or the Reach to you know, intervene in a war in the east because they'd have to cross the whole of the continent first. Yeah, yeah. Um, that may have been part of the strategy as well. 
And I think as far as an overall strategic goal for the Band of Nine, we know that all of them had different goals. Aliquo's goal was Tyraj, and he got that goal. Mm -hmm. And Melis's goal was Westeros, which is surely the most ambitious of the goals. But taking that one, being successful with Westeros would absolutely enable whatever the rest were. Because if you have Westeros... I mean, damn, you can do a lot. <laughs> you could, whatever yeah. the other Pirate Lord's goals were, could pretty easily be accomplished with, with Westeros backing that endeavor. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, mentioning the, the Pirate Kings, you know, that may have been their quid pro quo is yeah. like, okay, we want the Stepstones. That's going to be our little Pirate Kingdom. And so, you know, each step along the way, right, Malus makes sure that his friends get what they they bargain for so that they keep supporting him. Mm, that's a good call. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. As part of this, Melis is crowning before even the invasion of the Stepstones begins. So obviously calling yourself a king can help you draw more support, or at least it, it kind of issues the challenge Westeros has kind of put on notice because he's not calling himself king of the Stepstones. He's not calling himself king of Tyrosh or the Disputed Lands. He's calling himself king of Westeros. And that requires an answer from Westeros. Let's talk about the, what's going on in Westeros during all this time. Sure. Prior to Summerhall, around the time the band was forming, perhaps, or Maelys was making a name for himself as a new leader of the Golden Company, there, was a, there were interesting things happening in Westeros. This was the era which... Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg, the Egg, was trying to reform Westeros. He was a very much pro-commoner, and that is perhaps in part because he lived as one for a long time, but we don't need to get into the whys. The point is he was doing it, he was focused on doing it, but he was frustrated because the great lords, who were very powerful, of course, didn't want to give up their rights. They didn't want to give up any, they didn't want to concede anything to the peasants. They didn't want to lose any power. And this is, of course, partly why Aegon wanted to hatch dragons again, because he knew that the right. Great Lords would not <laughs> push back nearly as much or at all if the dragons were in place again. It's an interesting sort of period of time because Aegon V has lost his son, Prince mm -hmm. Daron, right? True. There's just been the rebellion of the, the rat, the hawk, and the pig. Whatever that was. and then. They didn't really take the the Band of Nine seriously initially. That um, that's true. They you know, didn't. Prince Duncan says that you know crowns are being sold nine a penny, uh, and the quote in the World of Ice and Fire is: "It was thought at first that the free cities of Essos would surely bring their power against them and put an end to their pretensions, but nevertheless preparations were made. Should Melis and his allies turn on the Seven Kingdoms?" But there was no great urgency to them, and King Aegon remained intent on his reign. So in the final years of Aegon's reign uh, and of his life, they didn't really take this seriously. They hoped that someone else would deal with it. They made certain preparations, but they didn't really have all of their ducks in a row when the war actually started. Yeah, right on. So... There was a little bit of unrest but uh, around Westeros, but it's not a that kind of thing isn't a huge deal. It may have interfered with their preparations, but Westeros was always going to unite against a foreign invader, which is something, by the way, to keep in mind for A Song of Ice and Fire proper when it comes, when this kind of thing, when, when say, some 
I don't know, some person maybe with dragons brings a foreign army to Westeros. That might provoke a reaction too, but let's not uh, get into that right now. But it is irrelevant to keep these things in mind because George loves to have history repeat itself. Not exactly, but in, in cycles with, with similar patterns. So sure, surely there were other factors, but this was a contribution to the need for the hatching of dragons. Maybe, maybe even in the back of his mind, Aegon was thinking, well, uh, yeah, I have, all these, I have this need for dragons, and hey, it might also help with this yeah, band I mean, of nine situation if it gets out of hand. If he hatches the dragons, number one, in the short term, it's like a huge symbolic victory. Yeah. Right? You know, who's, who's the rightful king of Westeros? Well, it's, it's absolutely the one with the dragon. <laughs> yeah. um, but if he can get a few years in there, right? It doesn't take Danny, what, two years to get the dragons ready for big enough for battle? <laughs> yeah, it would take a little while so, at least. Well, yeah. So, you know, if he gets two years that, you know, if he can delay things for a little bit, he may be able to, you know, and we saw it like, you know, with Prince Damon, one dragon can be incredibly decisive on the stepstone. <laughs> That's very true. That's a good point to bring up. Damon Targaryen, aka the Rogue Prince, the famous king consort of Rhaenyra during the Dance of the Dragons. He, before the Dance of the Dragons, he had conquered the stepstones, named himself king of the stepstones, and then just kind of left eventually. He was like, he kind of got bored with it, but <laughs> but he had a dragon. That's the point is it was easy-ish. It, well, it wasn't easy, but it was easier for him than just about anyone because he had Caraxes, the blood worm, which, you know, you can see how something with that name would be helpful in, in conquering. So there's a lot of other interesting people who were alive in this era, people, some of whom are still alive now. I would say Pycelle, but he's technically not still alive, but he was alive then. And his appointment as Grand Maester actually helps us date some of these things because he was appointed in 259 to be Grand Maester and he served Aegon V for a few months which means Summerhall was not in early 259. It would have been in at least middle or late 259. So Pycelle was Grand Maester for all of Jaehaerys II's reign, meaning all of the interim between Summerhall and the war and all of the war itself. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. And he wrote the book on it. Yeah, he wrote the book on it. That's true. And that's where he, of course, he, he seems to have particularly focused on Tywin and some of the Lannisters and stuff, but yeah. hey, that's Pycelle for you. You know, that's the you, we've come to expect that from him. So, what do you think it meant? As a, if we talk about symbols, the dragons would have had dragons been born, that would have been a symbol. Instead, basically, the opposite happened. Instead of them gloriously bringing dragons back into the world, they got themselves all killed. And <laughs> if, if, if you're someone who's got a sense of destiny, Maelys maybe thought he was destined to take the throne. Yeah. And if he wasn't, maybe some of his followers were worked up into a frenzy feeling that same, that same destiny. And seeing the king just kind of immolate himself and, and most of the Targaryen royal family, that had to give them a big boost of, of morale, if not like a superstitious shot in the arm saying, wow, this is a destiny thing. You think that yeah. was relevant? I, I was going to say, like, you know, one of the things that you notice with the Blackfire rebellions is that they're often, they're ha they happen shortly after some sort of, like, negative event. Yeah. You know, so the, the Great Spring Sickness, right, or the, you know, the weakness of Eris I, or what have you. So, I, I imagine it must have influenced Malus, especially. Like, what 
better symbol could there be that he's the rightful king and that the Targaryens are weak and degenerate and, you know, they've lost the mandate of heaven, so to speak. Then they all go up in flames. <laughs> yeah, it's right? really you symbolic, know. right? Like, it's like, wow. <laughs> of course, it's also, and, you know, you know concludes Rhaegar's birth and things like that. But hey, that's yeah. another story. But also the person who succeeds is like known to be a little bit of a weakling, right? Yeah. It's, it's not any of the sort of warrior sons of Aegon the Fifth. It's this sort of sickly heir and, you know, who was never expected to be king. So he might have sort of said, great. You know, not only does the, is the sort of court distracted by the fact that they've got a change in government, but the new government is completely un, unprepared and unqualified. So that's even further a sign that I'm the, the rightful ruler and can win this war in a cakewalk kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, well said. So let's see here. Whatever it meant to the Band of Nine, it was certainly a, a big deal in Westeros. It was certainly a, a major memorable event for the, the king and the royal family to immolate themselves. And, well, we've got a nice quote. The tragedy of Summerhall brought Jaehaerys, the second of his name, to the Iron Throne in 259 AC. Scarcely had he donned the crown than the Seven Kingdoms found themselves plunged into war, for the Ninepenny Kings had taken and sacked the free city of Tyrosh and seized the Stepstones. From there, they stood poised to attack Westeros. So it seems that with having sacked Tyrosh, it seems that they were most likely trying to exploit or extort as much wealth as possible in order to make these next set of moves. And, well, they were a very ambitious set of moves. I'll take a quick uh, diversion here. Luminia M sends a super chat and says, thank you for helping me understand George R. R. Martin's writing. You are most welcome. It is a bit of a challenge, but it is a worthy challenge. It's fun, and I'm glad that we're, uh, we're doing that for you. A question from a lot of people, what about Blackfire the Sword? Yeah, we certainly plan on talking about that and might as well be right now. It's it's difficult to be certain about Blackfire the sword here. We 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 I believe we briefly talked about it last time, but if it's in play here, Melis would have it. But if it's not in play here, then where the heck is it? Where who who would have it? It's it's really hard to say. It's a it's a bit of a mystery because the places it should be, it's not mentioned, which doesn't mean it's not there. It's just maybe that it's not mentioned, but if it's not in Melis's hand and if it's not held by the Iron Throne, then what the heck happened to it? That's an interesting question because in the like official artwork, Melis doesn't wield a sword. He's got like a, a morning star, a flail, right? Yeah, he's got a morning star. You know, so that may just be like a weapon of personal preference that he was just like I mean, especially if you're a very big, strong dude, right? You can pull a lot of force behind one of those things and knock people out around. We also know that he liked axes. Hmm. Um, so it may just have been a personal preference thing. It may be that he just kept it around for sort of ceremonial purposes, like not bringing it out on a battlefield where it could be potentially lost. Ah, uh, because, hmm. you know, the Blackfires had lost the sword and had to get it back a couple times, mostly when, you know, they kept getting killed. Um, <laughs> So that may have been a consideration that like keep it safe until the war's won and then you bring it out. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and one of my 
not I wouldn't say this is a strong theory, but something that I've considered as a, as a possibility is that Blackfire was destroyed at Summerhall. They may have brought it there. I don't know why they would bother to bring it there. They would probably just leave it at the Red Keep. But that would, if, if George is, decides he's written himself into a corner, he's got that option. <laughs> he's like, wait, hmm, maybe it was just melted at Summerhall. <laughs> maybe, but then the question is, well, how did Illyrio get his hands on it then? Yeah, I do think Illyrio probably has it, so that I mean, doesn't really fake, satisfy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's hard to fake Valyrian steel, you know what I mean? Very true. And I don't even know that wildfire would be enough to destroy the blade. It would probably it would destroy the hilt most likely. But the blade itself, mm, not so sure about that. Comment from Matt Reese, George R. Mar- with re- relating to the disputed lands, he says George might be saying that the disputed lands is desolate because it's being fought over all the time and it doesn't have it's unable to produce things because of the constant war. If it were held and kept stable, it might be able to grow food and be useful, but because of the constant fighting, it's unable to get to that point. That potentially makes sense. Matt says, think various lands in Germany during the Thirty Year War. Here's here's the thing, though. Medieval, or I should say pre-modern warfare doesn't actually damage like soil productivity that much. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, ironically, if if anything, you know, it's sort of the reverse. Bodies, human bodies make for good fertilizer. <laughs> good point. All those horses um, running around, yeah. And, you know, there, there's been uh, actually some, like, academic research on, like, did, you know, the sort of the myth of, like, salting the earth at Carthage. Yeah. Right, did that Sart actually... was so expensive, that seems very unlikely. <laughs> Yeah, did that actually damage productivity? Well, no. We know that the Romans, after they finally defeated the Carthaginians, they occupied Carthage. Yeah. It was a a grain-exporting province for a long time. And the the thing that made the Thirty Years' War so destructive to Germany is really the loss of population. Uh. It's not so much that the soil changed, it's that, like, half the population dies. There's no one to actually tend the fields. Yeah, and that was really unusual for mm. for wars. I mean, it it's the sp- the sort of particular nature of a very extended conflict, right? A war that took many, many, many years that doesn't normally happen, usually shorter than thirty years, and that it was a religious war. So, if you were a regular royal army or even a mercenary army, right? You'd go through and you'd rob the peasants, certainly. You don't think they would burn any crops or anything like that? I mean, you might a little bit. The chevauchets were a thing. But you wouldn't kill everybody. Mm, Because you want to conquer them. Yeah, yeah, mass murder would really be unusual. It's the fact that it was a religious conflict where it's all of a sudden... You know, these, are, these you don't think of people as like peasants to be to be conquered and, and taxed. You think of them as heretics who need to die so that their souls can be saved. <laughs> right. You know, so that's really what changed. And, you know, and one of the reasons why we know that it didn't damage the land exactly is that in the aftermath of the Thirty Years War. A lot of sort of local German princes started kind of advertising for immigrants. They would say, oh, like, wow. hey, come to my lands. I'll give you these vacant farms. I'll, you know, you won't have to pay taxes for 10 years or whatever. And lo and behold, the, the people who were able to attract immigrants to their kingdom uh, all of a sudden saw a pretty quick turnaround of economic fortune. 
So that's kind of like, I think Martin might be drawing from some earlier, less accurate history there. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Let's take a quick break, give some shout outs, and then we'll come back with the actual war and then the actual aftermath. Want to give a shout out to our Ironborn captains. Ironborn are going to be making an appearance in the war here very soon. We've got uh, the father of Euron and Balon and bringing his longships over to get involved in the Stepstones. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So let's give a shout out to the History of Westeros Ironborn captains, who I am currently searching for on my page here. It is Black Matos Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Sir Selvis Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chuck Laws, Captain of the Dromon Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. John Gregor is Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Sir Kiron of Lonely Light is Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromon armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen is Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate is Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Justice, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey is Captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold is a podcast focusing on lesser-known Song of Ice and Fire characters. Check them out. Prakash, the Lord Protector of the Gallifreyans, is Captain of the Tardis of the Seven Seas. Tempest of House Brewer is Captain of the Summer Storm. Also, a shout-out to our Blood Rider patrons. That includes Kohokoi, wielder of, called Sunpiercer, rather, wielder of a Dragonbone Bow. Vorsaki, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Arak with a Dragonbone Hilt. And Kokavo, the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip Gehenna. Also, I would like to give shout-outs to our Queens of Love and Beauty. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. And a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch. From Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. The Pot Moms podcast is a weekly pot-themed podcast that talks about cannabis and parenting. The Pot Moms podcast exists to help debunk the myth that moms and dads who smoke pot are bad parents. We aren't. We're really, really good ones. They review products and strains, interview interesting people, and join people who support or would like to learn more about cannabis and the great community around it. Hopefully, they'll make you laugh, too. And honestly, maybe it's just worth a listen so you can hear their dope theme song. Ha! Join Kate and Paul on their weekly show, available on almost all your favorite streamlined platforms, and destigmatize and learn cool shit. Keep blazing! And stay amazing. And now, the war itself. Quote, Jaehaerys had known that the Band of Nine meant to win the Seven Kingdoms for Maelys the Monstrous, who had declared himself King Maelys the First Blackfire. But like his father, Aegon, Jaehaerys had hoped the Alliance of Rogues would founder in Essos or fall at the hands of some alliance among the Free Cities. Now the moment was at hand, and King Aegon V was gone, as was the Prince of Dragonflies, Prince Daron. That splendid knight had died years before, leaving only Jaehaerys, the latest marshal of Aegon's three sons. And that's something you had touched on briefly before, but now it's a little. Now we've got kind of the official statement for it, and it's no wonder Jaehaerys was concerned. The scorn of his father and older brother was apparently misplaced. They were, as we said before, Dunk, Prince Duncan, who died at Summerhall, said, uh, "You know, they're giving crowns out nine a penny now." So they were. As we pointed out, they did make some preparations, but mostly they didn't take it super seriously. And now, all of a sudden, the Band of Nine has conquered three pretty hard-to-conquer places. And it doesn't seem like it took them very long. So three hard-to-conquer places taken in a short period of time, that's definitely going to change the outlook and make someone like King Jaehaerys sit up and pay attention, huh? 
So this is a war of conquest, not rebellion. That's really important. This is why people don't call it the Fifth Blackfire Rebellion, because there really wasn't, at least initially, there may have been eventually had the Black, had Maley's had more success. But at first, there doesn't seem to have been any Westerosi support for him. Is that right? Well, I was I was just amused because I uh, I was thinking that my counterparts in the Citadel of Westeros <laughs> probably you know there probably are lots of like academic books and missives back and forth arguing this point like oh yeah <laughs> he's That's a blackfire so it's got to be a blackfire rebellion <laughs> no but he didn't have any support in Westeros so it's not a rebellion it's a foreign invasion. And it never actually got to Westeros. So I imagine there's a lot of sort of back and forth on this. Yeah, that's a good point. I love thinking about it, what the what the maesters would be arguing over. You're totally I mean, right. Just, they would just absolutely. Like the, you know, they're <laughs> arguing over the War of Five Kings where they're like, no, well, there weren't actually five kings at any one point in time. So it doesn't make any sense. And if we count this other king, then it's six kings. And what about queens? And and other people are just like, no, but just people call it the War of Five Kings. So that's just what we're going to (laughs) do. Yeah. So uh, it's actually interesting to compare Melis's claim versus Robert Baratheon's claim. They're only 23 years apart. So that might, some people might think that this, that these were events were farther apart, but that's not, that's about a, you know, a little more than a generation terms of how Targaryen he really was, you know, obviously Robert's Targaryen blood was part of the equation for him getting the the throne at the end of the rebellion. And Damon Blackfire, frankly, had more Targaryen blood than the guy he was trying to unseat, Daryl. Not that that's some big argument or or advantage, but it certainly was relevant to the discussion at the time. And And of course, Ori's Baratheon. Melis's you know, second head, I imagine that the <laughs> Blackfires practiced a lot more Targaryen incest than the Targaryens were doing at that point in time. You know, it's the, entirely the, possible. You know, yeah, especially, well, Aegon V got unlucky with his kids, but you could sort of see that there was a, a push, broadly speaking, to like try to, to diversify the gene pool. Very Whereas true. It looks like the Blackfires kind of did the reverse. He kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, and you th- you see this, that guy we talked about, the one with the filed teeth, if he had been one of the Blackfires, you wonder if he had filed his teeth because as a result of some sort of other abnormality, he just turned it into a, I don't want to call it a strength, but turned it into a fearsome aspect. <laughs> now, we don't even know that that guy was a Blackfire, but it's, it's fun to consider that in, the, in light of them doing bad things with incest, it could result in... in things like that. But in terms of Robert, he had, you know, one of his claims was uh, being a descendant of Oris Baratheon. And, and, and of course, he had bl- Targaryen blood closer in the bloodline to, uh, in fact, Egg's children were, were married into his dynasty, his family rather. And they're both warriors. That's another important comparison. I mean, Robert and Maelys were both fearsome warriors. Maelys, you could say maybe was a little more scary because of what he looked like. But Robert could kill you just as well, I think. He was, you know, in terms of a fighting skill, I doubt we could say, we don't know whether Melis or Robert was more skilled, but Robert was certainly incredible as a warrior. Mm-hmm. But here we have Jaehaerys as a big weakling, and his son, Ares II, is also a weakling, and that's who Robert fought against. So there's uh, some interesting little parallels there. Now, of course, there's no dragons in either scenario, but Wildfire, of course, hangs over both because Ares was certainly going to blow up King's Landing near the end. And this War of Nine Penny Kings was significantly boosted by Summerhall happening. 
whatever Westeros can marshal to stop this threat, let's summarize real quickly what the Band of Nine had as they're moving into the, st- uh, the st- across the Stepstones. So they had the Disputed Lands, they had Tyrosh, most or all the Stepstones. We don't know exactly at what point Westeros sent their armies to the Stepstones to interfere with all this, but probably wasn't right away, uh, especially because of what we were saying about how quickly the Band of Nine was moving. Two pirate fleets, plus whatever ships they suborned from Tyrosh itself, at least four sellsword companies, including the Golden Company, and lots of money. Uh, they had sacked Tyrosh. The Golden Company probably had built up a, lot, a decent bit of wealth itself. Melee's probably had some cash. We've got pirate lords. They've got, their, they've got all their loot stashed, things like that. And the fact that Tyrosh is having lots of sellswords. Tyrosh just ha- is, a, is a city that is known for having and hiring sellsword companies, so they probably picked up a few others in, along the way there. It probably wasn't just the ones that were controlled directly by the Band of Nine. Would you get, would you, th- the commander of the Westerosi armies was, fittingly, Lord Orman Baratheon. How nice, a Baratheon. Jaehaerys II, even though we mentioned he was kind of a weakling, but he wasn't weak in terms of his attitude. He wanted to lead the troops, but Orman talked him out of it saying, look, man, you're just, your health is delicate. You're, you're not, this is not the kind of campaign for you. And you might wonder if Orman was just trying to get the glory for himself, but it sounds like he was telling the truth. Joe Harris died in his thirties, just of ill health. There's no evidence that it was poison. No reason to suspect that as far as I know. So it really does seem like Ormond was right. Uh, given all the things like plague and disease and, and all the different difficulties that the soldiers faced, it was probably, Orman was probably right. Another person who could have had an opinion on this was, well, we mentioned him already, Pycelle. And here's a quote from Pycelle. Unlike his brothers, Jaehaerys II Targaryen was thin and scrawny and had battled various ailments all his life. Yet he did not lack for courage or intelligence. Drawing on his father's plans, his grace put aside his grief, called his lord's bannerman, and resolved to meet the nine penny kings upon the stepstones, choosing to take the war to them rather than awaiting their landing on the shores of the Seven Kingdoms. King Jaehaerys said intended to lead the attack upon the nine penny kings himself, but his hand, Lord Ormond Baratheon, persuaded him that would be unwise. The king was unused to the rigors of campaign and not skilled in arms, the hand pointed out, and it would be folly to risk losing him in battle so soon after the tragedy of Summerhall. That's a decent point. A lot of good points there. So Lord Orman, let's talk about him. It was his father, Lionel, aka the Laughing Storm, who dueled none other than Sir Duncan the Tall when Prince Duncan the Small married Jenny of Oldstones instead of Lord Lionel's daughter. Now, the fallout of that was a very short war that resulted in a trial by combat of sorts between Duncan and the Laughing Storm. Not to the death, but Sir Duncan won and the Laughing Storm gave up his crown. And part of the uh, arrangement was for him to marry Lord Ormond, which, or Sir Ormond at the time, Lionel's son, to marry Rael, one of Egg's daughters. So they redid the marriage alignment uh, arrangement with a different pair of children. Mm-hmm. So this is also, by the way, the basis for Robert and Stannis and Renly's claim to the throne, this marriage to Rael. So this has this, this switching up of things actually had some pretty far-reaching consequences. 
Lord Orman's captains include for uh, several guys who are not named, but a few that are like Sir Jason Lannister. Not to be confused with the Lord of Castle Rock during the dance who was married to Johanna. This is the father of Joanna, as in Tywin's wife, mother of Cersei and Jaime and Tyrion. And this is also the father of Stafford Lannister, the one who is killed at Oxcross by Rickard Karstark. So, in other words, the grandfather to Jaime, Cersei, and Tyrion here. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. And we also have Lord Kellon Greyjoy, who I mentioned. That's the father of Balon and Euron and Victorian and all those guys. He came over and we got a quote from him, a leal servant of the Iron Throne. He led a hundred long ships around the bottom of Westeros during the War of Nine Penny Kings and played a crucial role in the fighting around the Stepstones. Now, here's where we really get into, we really have to speculate. Were there Manderleys or Valarians or Celtigars or Farmans or the Arbor, any of the other island nations were involved? And because they would be really valuable in dealing with island warfare. They're, they've lived on these places for thousands of years. But there might be some internal politicking. Who wants to be commanded by a Greyjoy? A lot of lords and their pride would yeah, not allow for that. What do you think? Do you think that would have been a, yeah, would have been a mean, problem? It, it may be that there were like several fleets going on at once, right? That, you know, the, the Greyjoy fleet of longships is much better suited for fast-moving harassment than... Yeah, that's true than big capital ships that can hold hundreds of warriors inside them. So it, it may be that they were sort of operating separately. One other thing that I, I wanted to touch on is that Ormond also brought his son, Stefan. Yeah. And Stefan was very close to uh, Eris. He was his, his page and squire. That is uh, a big deal. That's, of course, that's Robert's and Stannis and Renly's father rather than Ormond's right. grandfather. One of the things that sort of that we always have to keep in mind with the War of Nine Penny Kings is like these these generational issues, right? You know, fathers and sons kind of working together, one replacing the other. The sort of politics and and dynastic succession and grief all kind of mixing. Very true. Now, Jason Lannister, getting back to him for a second, he apparently brought. 10,000 infantry and 1,000 knights. Now, if that's the Westerlin's complement, maybe the Westerlin's complement was particularly large. But even if only, say, 5,000 came each from Dorne, the Iron Islands, the Stormlands, the Crownlands, the Riverlands, the Vale in the North, this could be a very, very big army. Now, it wouldn't all be in one place at one time, else we'd be talking field of fire for the largest ever army assembled. But still, yeah. this is a very large amount of troops. And it contains notables like we mentioned them at the beginning but here's where Barristan and Blackfish who weren't well known at this point well they're about to be well known they're getting this is where they made their name here's another quote we get specifics about some of the other Lannisters besides Jason as well as a few other important mentioned characters knighted on the eve of the conflict Sir Tywin Lannister fought in the retinue of the king's young heir Ares Prince of Dragonstone and was given the honor of dubbing him a knight at war's end. Kevin Lannister, squiring for the Red Lion, also won his spurs and was knighted by Roger Rain himself. Their brother Tygett, a squire of ten, was too young for knighthood, but his courage and skill at arms were remarked upon by all, for he slew a grown man in his first battle and three more in later fights, 
one of them a knight of golden company. Those who beheld these proud young lions on the battlefield might rightly wonder how such could ever have sprung from the loins of the quivering fool beneath the rock. Grand Maester Pycelle wrote scornfully in his observations upon the recent bloodletting on the stepstones. Recent bloodletting on the stepstones. So it means it's, it implies he wrote that fairly like right after this war, which is yeah. pretty interesting. It's obviously very pro Lannister. <laughs> I also love that title because it's sort of that perfect, like academic boring title. It's like, you're talking about, <laughs> you know, this enormous, you know, recent, you know, upheaval. And it's, you know, observations on the recent bloodletting. It's, you know, it's just so dry and, and, and trying to strip out all of the drama. <laughs> yeah, it's like, man, this was really more interesting than you make it sound by itself. But a couple observations from that. Uh, for example, this shows us a lot. As we, we're going to get into the details, but this was a really nasty war. And that... For someone like Tywin to get and Kevin and Tygett, all to have been there early on, it really says a lot about their development and why they became, well, the way they turned out. And it's it's a bit sad, too, because Kevin Lannister squiring for the Red Lion was knighted by the Red Lion. It's not long after this war ends that those two, uh, well, all of those two houses go to war effectively. Yeah. And so Kevin's on the side is is, tur- is a fighting against the man who knighted him. That's 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 not fun. That's not that's not ideal by any means. And interestingly, we're told that Gary and Lannister, the fourth brother, who's not mentioned here, Tywin's youngest brother, was according to Tyrion, he was sort of the the odd man out. He was separate from his other three brothers, and this explains why, almost certainly. Maybe it's yeah. just a coincidence, but he's the one that wasn't part of this. The other three went through this experience, this bonding experience, this formative experience together. Well, Garen was too young for it, so it's no wonder that he tried to go make a name for himself by doing something kind of crazy and unique by going to sailing to Valyria and, and such like that. Yeah, and it also speaks to how three brothers who are of very different personalities who don't always get along very well could have then cooperated during the reigns of Castamere. And I, I, you know, we'll get into this more later, but I think that sort of initial bonding experience was really important in making sure that like all of House Lannister was on the same team when that yeah. conflict started. And of course, it, it, it's huge for Tywin's relationship with Aerys, which, as we know, was good to begin with. It was good for a long time. They were like best friends, Oma, or, or at least something like that. Certainly had a strong working relationship. Of course, things went bad much later, in part because of Aerys' growing into madness and, and Tywin being his own lord and them just having other, other things to disagree on. But anyway, this is where that started, and it shows that it started well. They started off as on, on the right foot, but... Much later, things went bad. So let's talk about a few other characters who would have been of age or of an age to be at least involved or impacted by this. Doran Martell would have been 12 or 13 years old. We, Of course, he probably didn't fight in the war, but we know we have a quote here about Doran's participation. Doran continued to be closely allied with House Targaryen in the years that followed, with the Martells supporting the Targaryens against the Blackfire pretenders and sending spears to fight the nine penny kings on the stepstones. So John Aaron was already 40 years old. He probably was, he may have already been Lord by then. Uh, Bronzion Royce, who's an older man, would have been of age to fight in this and war. John Aaron being the, 
the warden of the east, right? The stepstones are his bailiwick. Good point. Good point. So, you know, he's sort of legally obligated to do something about all of this. Very true. Wilder Frey would have been 52 years old, so he wouldn't have fought in this war, but he may have sent Stevron Frey, the, the, his heir who fought in the War of Five Kings with Rob and died at long, not long after. I think it was Oxcross. Aenys Frey, one of the architects of the Red Wedding, he's of age to have maybe fought in that war, although he's, he's said to be more of a commander type, but still he would have had to do some you know, soldiering before he moved up the ranks. Luthor Tyrell, the one who rode off the cliff, would have been Lord of Highgarden around here. And certainly uh, you'd expect the, the Red Wines or the High Towers with their yeah. naval forces to be involved. Very good point. Plus, they're just such powerful houses that it would be shameful for them not to contribute to the defense of the entire continent, um, which is a different situation than internal fighting. When, they, when two houses fight each other, that's a different look. It's like, well, it's internal. It's a civil thing. We, are, we don't necessarily have to take a side. But it's, it's kind of cowardly for an outside invader to come and for houses to not help. Uh, I think that's uh, it's, it's one of those noble sort of, it's like a pride thing. Uh, Hoster Tully's father would have been Lord of Riverrun and Hoster Tully definitely fought in this war. We know that he, this is when he met and apparently befriended Lord uh, Peter Baelish's dad. And that's how that whole situation got started with the fostering of, of Peter at Riverrun. So, yeah. whoa. It would have been <laughs> interesting because this is before him and... Um, the Blackfish have their falling out. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it would have been sort of one of the few times where you could see the two Tully brothers kind of getting along. Now, given their their relationship, uh, I imagine it was always somewhat contentious, but they were not yet not speaking to each other. Yeah, you wonder if Hoster was maybe a little jealous that Blackfish, the younger, his younger brother, is the one that got famous from this. He's the one that really rose in esteem and, and got popular and noticed, whereas... Yeah. You know, as a, the way pride amongst nobility works and the way the elders are supposed to be, you know, they get everything. <laughs> so yeah. it, it might be a, a point of pride for Hoster and a point of, of well, something for Blackfish to hold over as his older brother, <laughs> which could in turn be uh, fuel some of their arguments over marriages and things like that. Edwile Stark would have been Lord of Winterfell at the time. That's Ned's grandfather. Wyman Manderley would have been in his late teens. Uh, Gior Mormont would have been of age to fight in this war. Sir Roderick Cassell as well. And we don't know that they did. It's just, it makes sense that they would have. Joe Magician brings up, what about Black Walder, Frey? Black Walder, I'm not sure how old he is. I think he might have been a little too young, but that's a possibility. I think he might only be in his 40s, which would mean he was yeah. two years old or three years old. <laughs> um, but Rickard Stark. Yeah, Rickard would have been... Is- a very strong possibility because his whole Southern ambitions, right. Had to start somewhere and where better to like start building relationships with people as far flung as like John Aaron. Yeah. Uh, or Hoster Tully than being at war. And we know that like, uh, Rickard Stark was like a very, was a talented warrior because he was like, absolutely sure that, come a trial by combat with one of the King's guard. Mm. I can win. <laughs> so, you know, he, he probably was a bit of a badass. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, as far as other people in the Stormlands, Maester Crescent would have been the Maester, uh, would have been a Maester maybe at, uh, either at Storm's End or Dragonstone. Donald Noy, uh, Donald Noy, the blacksmith mm-hmm. at the wall. Uh, he would have been of age and he was blacksmith, uh, or at least at 
Storm's End around this time. Some of the other Kingsguard, of course, because Ares is going prince. He's the prince. He's the heir to the throne. Of course, there would be Kingsguard there. Now, what's interesting about the Kingsguard at this time is it would be mostly a fresh batch of Kingsguard because Summerhall very likely wiped out most, if not nearly all yeah. of them. Because the whole royal family was there, minus maybe one or two, and wherever the royal family is, the Kingsguard goes too. And we know Duncan died there, uh, uh, Duncan the Tall. And right, so it, they lost their yeah. Lord Commander. Yeah, and yeah, so G- Gerald Hightower is maybe the new Lord Commander, which would be a little unusual for a younger man to be Lord Commander uh, when there were veterans, but there probably weren't veterans <laughs> because of Summerhall. And it wouldn't be long, in fact, before Gerald would be in charge of the whole army. So let's talk about what happened because he was not in charge at first. Now, this is where we're getting back to your idea that there may yeah. have been a trap. So let me, let's do this quote and we'll get to that. In 260 AC, his lordship landed Targaryen armies upon three of the Stepstones and the War of the Nine Penny Kings turned bloody. Battle raged across the islands and the channels between for most of that year. Maester Eon's account of the War of the Nine Penny Kings, one of the finest works of its kind, is a splendid source for the details of the fighting, with its many battles on land and sea and notable feats of arms. Yeah, I wish we had that book. So let's talk about this. The early fighting, almost right away, Lord Armand Brathian is killed by Maelys the Monstrous and dies in the arms of Stefan Baratheon, his son, again, father of Robert Stannis and Renly. So you have a, a theory here. I like this. Yeah. But whatever, just a little more background. Lord Ormond, probably a big guy. Like almost every Baratheon we hear about is a big guy. So yeah, this would have been, might have been quite a fight here. We already compared Maelys to Robert before, so I can't help thinking of a Robert-like figure facing a Maelys with two heads and his giant weapon. That would have been something cool. Anyway. Yeah. Tell us uh, so, what you think. So the fact that Ormond is among the first to die and dies specifically at the hands of Maylies makes me think that this was something of a trap that basically, you know, at least in these early battles, Maylis's whole plan was, well, let me cut the head off the snake, right? Go after ambush the leadership of the Westerosi armies and then you know they're scattered across multiple islands it's very difficult to have communication and coordination in the best of case but if i can take out the the leadership then it's like each little bit is fighting on its own and not fighting as a unified mass which is if you have to fight a bigger opponent and given how many tens of thousands of men the westerosi brought with them that's not a bad way to go about it. That's a great point, too. Just the fact that you, you mentioned that there were so many men, um, probably on both sides, yet somehow Melis and Ormond go at it almost right away. It does imply something was up there. I mean, maybe they were just two just guys that just really wanted to go against each other. So they're so big and noticeable across a battlefield that it was something simpler like that. But I, I agree with you. There's a lot of room for something suspicious to be up here. If not a trap, at least a a well-planned counter-strike. Like, look here, we know they're coming. We know we have an idea where they're going to land and we're going to be ready for them. Likely, Ormond is crossing in the flagship. So Mm. it's possible to sort of identify his vessel ahead of time and sort of say, okay, I know where he's going to be. Let me go after him. 
and you can understand why they would want to, why the Malis would want to strike at the Westerosi forces quickly, because with the Stepstones, it's it's this crazy chaotic space. If you allow them to build a base of operations, then this becomes quite a difficult endeavor for both sides. But if you can maybe stop them from getting that initial foothold, it says in that quote that they landed armies on three of the Stepstones, so they were aware that they needed to have a broad start. They can't just grab a corner of one step stone and kind of work from there. You need to have a take off a bigger chunk at the beginning. And this is partly why if they had just grabbed one little spot, well, it'd be really it'd be even easier for the, for the black fire forces to come and find that one place and uh, concentrate on it. So there's a lot of potential for spying and, and reconnaissance to have played a huge role here for the pirate ships to have really made use of their our knowledge of the area and, and bring that to a great advantage. Cause this is something, the, not that the Blackfire side, the, the Band of Nine side would be experts on the Stepstones, but they might be. And the Westerosi armies are definitely not. That's the, I would say that probably using a sports term, that Wester, the Westeros was kind of the away team here. And yeah. the, the Band of Nine, even if they weren't experts on the Stepstones, they had at least had some time to get used to it. And we know that some of their forces were used to it. So that's a, a big advantage in terms of terrain and knowing the lay of the land. The White Bull replaces Lord Ormond after this uh, potentially epic duel between Melis and Lord Ormond. We don't know how the war goes from there, but we know it becomes kind of, maybe not drawn out, but uh, a real back and forth, really yeah. nasty. You suggested that there's a lot of evidence for protracted, maybe not like super long sieges of years because this, this, this engagement wasn't that long, but maybe Monster, armies having to yeah. stick in place for a long time. And what does it mean? What happens when armies have to sit in place for too long? So the problem is when an army is in siege, as opposed to like marching around, you start using the same cesspits over and over again. Human waste starts to leak into the, the water table. The water goes bad. And that's when you start to get disease spreading. Yep. And we know that some significant people died in the War of the Stepstones, not from injury, but from disease. Very specifically, Sir Jason that we just mentioned, the father of Joanna, the wife of Tywin, dies of bloody flux. Now, if it got a lord like him, there's a pretty good chance that it got a lot of other people. Not that diseases afflict, necessarily afflict lower uh, status people more often, but obviously a bl- bloody flux can get anyone. But he, of all the the best water around, you got to figure the, the Lord of of Casterly Rock or a Skyon of Casterly Rock is going to have the best available food and water. <laughs> They've got the money, yeah, right? He's not eating. He's not <laughs> eating with the common soldiers unless things have gone really bad. Either way, something really bad happened. Maybe it was just a fluke, but it doesn't sound like it. We've got other examples of people getting disease. So Roger Rain, the Red Lion, takes over. So again, this is setting up some tragedy later. You've got the the guy bravely and capably leading the Western forces, who is eventually going to be, you know, persona non grata to to House Lannister. But it also suggests that there is a certain element of chaos, right? Yeah. It it doesn't say that the White Bull appointed Roger Rain to lead the Westermen contingent. They just says he seized he he seized command. Yeah. So, true. you know, part of what may be going on is that because you have the Westerosi forces divided in three, 
and maybe only intermittently able to communicate, right? You know, if, yeah, they're if, not, there's no uh, ravens going back and forth, that's for sure. Yeah, so, you know, the only way to get messages is by ship. And if, you know, the Blackfire Navy seems to be doing better on a given day than, than your Navy, you may be very difficult, you know, you may be cut off. Um, so it certainly suggests that, like, to an extent, this sort of, like, top-down command is starting to break down, and instead what you're seeing is that individuals are able to distinguish themselves. And, yeah. you know, partly through sort of personal feats of arms and partly through kind of force of personality to take command. We spoke earlier about like Hoster and Brendan Tully, right? If you get into a situation which the, the rivermen are on their own or, you know, the, they're under the command of someone who dies unexpectedly, then that helps to explain how all of these young men start to make their reputation because leaving aside the sort of fathers and sons, you get people stepping into dead men's shoes all the time. True. And I, I really think that you mentioned it, but I want to really re reemphasize the problems of communication here. Even armies that are separated from each other on mainland Westeros can communicate reasonably well because they can send riders back and forth. And it's difficult for anyone to stop those riders because they're generally going from one allied camp to another. But with the Stepstones, with things, there's so much back and forth. There isn't just like a line you can draw where left of this line or west of this line is the West Rossi side and then east of it is the Blackfire side. It's not like that. There's probably very piecemeal. Like they have a corner of one island and a chunk of another island and yeah. this one's being fought over and no other island knows what's happening on the other islands. They get information brought to them, but it's already out of date as soon as it gets there. So that brings us back to Sir Jason dying of flux because it may have been this chaos may have created problems with supplies and logistics. So maybe yeah. Sir Jason wasn't drinking the best water and eating the best food. Maybe all his fancy Lannister gold wasn't able to achieve much because, well, they were cut off for some reason or another. Maybe they got yeah, uh, some sinks or whatever. Yeah, there's a million things that could go wrong in a campaign in a situation like this. So let's turn our mind away from the lords and think a little bit more about the common soldiers and what their experience would be like. And of course, it's not pleasant at all. From Brienne's chapters come quite a bit of context that's much different than the historical perspectives given by, say, Picel, uh, who is focused on the nobles, especially the Lannisters, and not thinking too much about the commoners. So if we take a step back, this is fitting because Brienne's chapters do so much in explaining the cost of war. Arya's too, by the way, but Brienne's are particularly focused on that. Her chapters are thick with aftermath. The short term, meaning the War of Five Kings is the most prominent, but the long term hangs over it all. Consider that long term when thinking about the oldest characters in the Song of Ice and Fire, the ones who have seen war before, ones who were already veterans when Greyjoy's Rebellion and Robert's Rebellion came around. So. No Ned, no Robert, certainly not Brienne herself. I'm talking about a lot of these characters we've mentioned already, like the guys who were 55 and up when A Song of Ice and Fire begins. People we've mentioned like Tywin and Ares, things like that. But of all these characters, a lot of them are veterans of this war. That's the important thing here. It's no small thing to see war at such a young age. And echoes of these old wars are found in George R. R. Martin's characterizations of these most senior of veterans and Brienne is our portal to so much of that aftermath, recent and long gone. Her chapters take us there. She encounters a variety of older characters that have experience in war and this particular war. 
from the over-the-top but honorable goofball hedge knights to the brutally unsympathetic Randall Tarley to nimble Dick Crab to the bloody mummers from Podrick to our next mini-subject, Sir Goodwin. The name might not mean much, but I would wager most of you were moved by his short presence in Brienne's memories. The name isn't memorable, but his deeds, his thoughts are. He's the one who trained her. He's the one who gave her those very valuable lessons and left a deep impression on her. He's the one who taught her to fight slowly, let them expend themselves, let them expend their energy. This is how she beats Jamie and, uh, and, and Rorge as well. So Brienne is from House Tarth, which is an island in the Stormlands, not terribly far from the Stepstones. So Tarth would know the pirates of the Stepstones better than most. It might have even been personal for some of the Knights of Tarth to take a shot at some of these pirates. It might be they're like, we've been wanting to get back at these guys for a while. We've been enduring attacks from them for a long time without much ability to strike back. So if it wasn't personal for Sir Goodwin at first, it certainly became personal when he himself fought against the forces of the Nine Penny Kings. This is from A Feast for Crows, Brienne Four. When I was a squire young as you, I had a friend who was strong and quick and agile, a champion in the yard. We all knew that one day he would be a splendid knight. Then war came to the Stepstones. I saw my friend drive his foeman to his knees and knock the axe from his hand. But when he might have finished, he held back for half a heartbeat. In battle, half a heartbeat is a lifetime. The man slipped out his dirk and found a chink in my friend's armor. His strength, his speed, his valor, all his hard-won skill. It was worth less than a mummer's fart because he's flinched from killing. Remember that, girl. I will, she promised his shade there in the piney wood. She sat down on a rock, took out her sword, and began to hone its edge. I will remember, and I pray I will not flinch. I wonder how many other knights who facing their first battle were having a thought kind of like that. Like, like I've, been, I've been preparing for this moment. And I, I, I pray I will not flinch. I pray I will do what I need to do. So that's hugely moving. I think this is, this is a really powerful moment. It's really interesting to think about that because in this quote, it says war came to the Stepstones. It's, it, no one mentions the Nine Penny Kings because it's not that important what war it was for in the time during A Feast for Crows. The, the point is this lesson, right? But it's interesting for us today that he happens to have learned this lesson in the War of Nine Penny Kings. What do you think about this, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, it very much suggests that a lot of the fighting was quick hand-to-hand stuff. It was, we see some images of sort of, uh, you know, more traditional open field battles, but it does seem that a lot of this is this kind of like, almost sort of like, you know, ambushes, right? It's, yeah. It's like small scale conflict. It's, it's almost, I almost think of the Dance of the Dragons because you didn't want, you couldn't have large armies of the Dance of the Dragons because it was too dangerous to gather a lot of men because of the dragon could just come and cook the whole thing. In this case, it's not that you're worried about a dragon coming along. It's just that you can't have too many men at once. These aren't large battlefields. These aren't flat plains where you can charge with, uh, with a whole group of knights. You, you don't necessarily have room for pike formations and things like that. So yeah, they're all adapting to war that they're not used to fighting. And for the commoners who aren't used to fighting at all, don't know why they're there. They don't understand the point. And it's so wild for them to be 
taken out of Westeros. I mean, every other Westerosi engagement that we hear about is a civil conflict. The only other foreign conqueror I can really think of is, I mean, Aegon himself. And he wasn't yeah. even really foreign. He lived there. He just, <laughs> he lived on Dragonstone. So that's, that's a stretch to call him a foreigner. So this is a really unique war. Having commoners, levies, people who maybe have never left their own village, not just taken miles and miles away to fight in some battle over some castle. They're taken off the continent. Yeah. Onto I mean, for, a, yeah, a lot of them, it would be the first time and probably the only time that they were on a ship. You know, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Just think about how much more worldly there would be for like a certain generation mm-hmm. coming back as commoners. Like they would really would know about some luxuries, some SOC things. I don't know. It's true. They would have a much different yeah. outlook than most it, money it's generation. Like yeah. World War One or World War Two, where you know how how do you keep them on the farm once they've seen Paris? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Although you know the stepstones aren't Paris. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good point. They're they're pretty bad. They may have but been they worse probably than probably <laughs> would have seen King's Landing. Ah, that's true. Yeah. Storms end. Stuff like that. <laughs> Definitely seen more than they would have ever expected to see. Even more important than this Sir Goodwin and his nameless friend, this is one of the most moving passages in the entire series. It's a centerpiece for most anyone who wants to argue that Feast is as good, if not better, than the other four. I'm speaking of Septon Maribald. I'm one of those people. (laughs) Right on, there you go. (laughs) Number one. Surely one of the most memorable parts of A Feast for Crows is his Broken Man speech. The live, a live performance of it by our good friend Scatty from Davos Fingers is one of my favorite fandom moments of all time. He recited this. He performed it from memory, wearing a cloak, and a cat was so good. I believe you can find it on the Ice and Fire Con YouTube channel. Oh, hell yeah. So, given Septon Maribald's travels, he has clearly seen the aftermath of war more than most, but... As he speaks, it becomes clear that war is even more personal to him than that. It's not just something that he's he's trying to help out with, something that he's seen firsthand. It's something that he experienced firsthand when he was younger. A detail that you may have forgotten is Septon Maribald's first experience in war when he gives his famous quote was that he fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings. Brienne could hear the wind rustling through a clump of pussy willows and farther off the faint cry of a loon. She could hear Dog panting softly as he loped along beside the Septon and his donkey, tongue lolling out of his mouth. The quiet stretched and stretched until finally she said, How old were you when they marched you off to war? Why, no older than your boy, Maribald replied, too young for such in truth, but my brothers were all going and I would not be left behind. Willem said I could be his squire, though Will was no knight only a pot boy armed with a kitchen knife he'd stolen from the inn. He died upon the stepstones and never struck a blow. It was fever did for him and for my brother Robin. Owen died from a mace that split his head apart and his friend John Pox was hanged for rape. The War of the Ninepenny Kings? asked Heil Hunt. So they called it, though I never saw a king nor earned a penny. It was a war, though. That it was. There was glory for the nobles, well, some of them anyway, but that, what Septon Maribald described just now, was the lot that fate gave to many of the peasantry, and we're reminded of what Stephen was talking about. Two different characters mentioned in that quote died of fever, and yeah. that's, yeah, 
So you get what we're saying. Like these guys, three, several of these men never, it says Will never, never struck a blow. Robin and Owen maybe didn't either. Uh, yeah, just wild. Just what a waste. And it was probably unprecedented, right? Like I said, these guys had never been outside of, of where they lived. So a related lesson from both Sept and Maribald and Sir Goodwin is that the Westerosi armies would be full of untested knights and untrained levies. And in Westeros versus Westeros conflicts, both sides have many of such, right? When you get the peasant levy, when the Stormlands rallies their levies and goes to war with the Reach, well, it's the peasant levies are fairly equally matched. But on the Stepstones, these levies were not arrayed against other levies. They were pitted against sellswords and pirates and the otherwise violently ambitious. In other words, trained and seasoned killers who perhaps never needed to be told not to flinch when it came to killing. They're like, oh yeah, this is what we're ready to do. These are men who, flinching is out of the question, they enjoy killing, right? This is why they're in this business that they're in because they, I mean, sellswords who flinch from killing, please. <laughs> Pirates who flinch. Very long. <laughs> yeah, there's no old sellswords, there's no bold sellswords. There's also, there's no old bold sellswords. There's also no cowardly, you know, afraid to draw their sword sellswords. Maribald never, never spoke of the journey they took by ship to get there. But this is something we should consider from both a military strategic and strategic perspective and from a what was it like from the soldiers type perspective. So let's just briefly talk about that naval engagements. We touched on it briefly, but let's focus on it a little more. There's, like I said earlier, there's a significant history of Ironborn Reaving versus Stepstones. Uh, specifically, Harwin Hoare mentions it, the Red Kraken from the Dance of the Dragons. He specifically went there. Balon specifically reaved in the Stepstones. Asha has specifically reaved in the Stepstones. Dagmar Clefjaw, which again, by the way, something Theon missed out on, reaving in the Stepstones is yet another thing that separates him from his family. But that's another story. So imagine the Ironborn versus Samarosan. They all start with S's. They're all similar. Anyway, so Samarosan and his fleets and the Jolly Fellows and the Old Mother and the Ebon Prince versus a hundred of Kellon Greyjoy's longships. Can you imagine? I, I hardly know where to yeah, begin I mean, with thinking about that. It, it does sort of, <laughs> sort of smack of like, I mean, it's Vikings versus pirates, right? <laughs> there, aren't any, yeah. there aren't any ninjas involved. But, you know, you, you have to sort of presume around the edges. There must have been this an, whole other side of, of this war, which is basically the only way to keep your armies fed, right? Yeah. Is to control the sea lanes, which means that, you know, if you can sever the sea lanes on, on the other side, so it's like two wars are happening at once. And it does suggest that, like, given the, the spread of disease among the Westerosi, that supplies were not the best maintained in, in part because I imagine the Ironborn are a lot more experienced at raiding other people than preventing people from being raided. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. They're the ones taking the supplies, not delivering them. Also, you wonder too, if this was part of the Blackfire, the Band of Nine strategy, once, if they saw the logistical flaws in the Westerosi approach, they may try to exploit that. Say, look, they're doing a, they're going about this all wrong. If we yeah. do this and that, they're going to start losing men to disease. And if we just attack their supplies and avoid too many direct yeah. conflicts and, and focus on guerrilla raids, things like that, it could be really effective. Well, this is where I think they were kind of like reverse engineering from the third and fourth Blackfire rebellions, where they mm. were the ones conducting a foreign invasion and stretching out their supply lines across the same area, right? If you were invading from Tyrosh 
into the stormland, you're going right through the stepstones. So they may have sort of said, like, we know how difficult it is to do this because we were on the receiving end. If we reverse the situation, then maybe we'll get the upper hand that way. Sounds good. Yeah, well said. The another just a yet another difference about this campaign, this theater of war, is that there's much different structures. We don't know what's on the stepstones, but there's not Westerosi style castles for sure, which also means there's no maesters. There's no guy who knows healing and communication and can send messages at every several miles or so, or at least every reasonable amount of distance. Nothing like that at all. So again, this just speaks to the issues of communication and the lack of people who know how to deal with diseases and injuries, which helps explain how this got so out of hand. However things went, however the the strategies were, whatever direct conflict, whatever guerrilla warfare was happening, some at some point, things came to a head. Here we have a section that I've called the bold and the unbeautiful. And let's have a yeah. quote. <laughs> As the war hung in the balance, a young knight named Ser Barristan Selmy slew Melis in single combat, winning undying renown and deciding the issue in a stroke. Just like that. Someone kills Melis, and it's someone we know very well, a character who's got POVs and Damn it, I wish he would have thought about this in his POVs. It's not too late. We'll we'll, we'll see with the winds of winter, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I really wish. He just, let me think about, boy, that sure was a great duel I had with Melee's the Monstrous. Come on, Barristan, give us that. But given that we're- He's doing a very similar thing, right? He's riding out in in the Battle of Fire. He's riding out with his cavalry to like try to smack into the, the enemy forces and take out their leadership. So there's a there's a chance. One of my head cannons is that Barristan will fight Bloodbeard because first of all, Barristan really wants to fight Bloodbeard, <laughs> and second of all, it would just be really cool. And if he goes up against Bloodbeard, I think he might get Melee's vibe, mm-hmm. the commander of a sellsword company who's large and and savage and brutal. Yep. So there's a chance. There's a chance. I've got hope. Now, given that comparison of Melee's to Gregor that we made back in the first part. It's not hard to for your mind to float towards Red Viper versus Gregor vibes when you think about this, but it's actually pretty different. This was a battle, not a duel. There would be other members of the Golden Company alongside Melis. Apparently, Barristan killed several of them yeah, to he, get he, to Melis. I think the phrase is like he cut his way through the Golden Company. To what get a to badass! Melis. Yeah, that's <laughs> really cool. I got. We got. I wish we could see that. <laughs> so many of these guys close to Melis would have been like his closest companions, guys who had fought beside him for years in the Golden Company. Some of them may have even been in the Fourth Blackfire Rebellion. Some of them would have known Bittersteel. These are veterans of the Golden Company, I and mean, these are strong, experienced, tough warriors. So this is, you really can't understate Barristan's badassery here. Is it actually a one-on-one duel? Like, were they on horseback? The art indicates they were on horseback. Like you yeah. pointed out, that he, that's where we see him in his flail, with his flail and, and no helmet. Well, that would, <laughs> that would make a certain amount of sense, which is if, if everything was like these dug-in infantry blocks, right? It's much harder to get through to attack the commander. Whereas mm. with a cavalry charge that meets another cavalry charge, things are a little bit looser and you can't really like, it's hard to stop a charging horse. <laughs> That's true. You know, it's, it, you tend to see more of these sort of like passes. One side sort of swings past the other group, people die in the middle, and then they sort of both turn around and swing back again. Mm-hmm. So I can sort of see in that scenario that, yeah, if, if Melee's, you know, being the, 
tough, strong warrior that he was is, is leading his men personally in a cavalry charge. That would be the scenario where you could actually cut through enough people to kill him. You have the momentum. Yeah, it's not like you're going to run into a wall or something. That's a good, that's a great point. Yeah. So it's, ex- which also just makes it even more brave and just tells you more about how these cavalry engagements work and just how crazy they are and how, yeah, you really got to have a tough mind for this stuff. And Melis himself, I mean, we compared him to Gregor. We compared him to Robert here. We I mean, we've compared him to Megor the Cruel. And it's, it's both an interesting facet and a major flaw in having a king who likes to fight in the front lines. It's very inspiring for the men. The men love having a king who takes on similar or equal dangers to them. Someone like Alexander the Great did the similar thing, and he was not a large man. But it's also, this is the big flaw in it. You, have a, you can get killed right in the middle of battle. But no one's going to tell Melis the Monstrous not to fight. I mean, it's the same thing with Robert. You, they tried to tell Robert not to fight to get him to fight. They, they knew it would have the opposite effect. So it's going to make him want to fight even more. I'm imagining that if any of Melis's commanders were like, maybe don't fight. Yeah, that's just going to make him want to fight even more. He was probably one of those guys that generally loved fighting. I mean, he was born into a sellsword company. So yeah, it kind of goes with the territory. And uh, Sir Duncan the Tall slew the prior Blackfire pretender, Damon III. Uh, this wasn't actually two in, the ro- two in a row for the Kingsguard, though, because Barristan wasn't in the Kingsguard yet. This is what earned him the White yeah. Cloak. He got his nickname, the Bold, came from before this, too. So uh, he is well, well regarded. He was, I think, 23 years old when this happened. So Barristan is very conflicted over Duskendale, right? That's a big part of yeah. his character epic act of skill and bravery clearly but he's torn over it because he saved the mad king and that's tough the mad king went on to do awful things the slaying of Melis, though no conflict there whatsoever that's pr- maybe part of why it's not something that he readily thinks of because there's no it may have been important and defining for his life but it wasn't anything that he's conflicted over he killed an invading king in the thick of battle that's i mean it didn't entirely end the war but it ended the threat of an invasion so saying he ended the war in, a, in one kill is pretty close to true and also of great importance it's a matter of honor to avenge one's liege lord i think, I think this gets lost in the shuffle a bit not because what Melis killed Lord Ormond Baratheon, that's the Hand of the King and Lord of Storm's End, but also Lord Paramount of the Stormlands. That's how Selmy's overlord. So he avenged his overlord. He avenged the Lord Paramount of the Stormlands. That's, it is really hard to win more glory with a single kill. You end the war, you avenge your liege lord, all this stuff. I mean, let's, I, I've, I've, I've been going off for a while. So Stephen, let's hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it does help to explain like why Barristan is so legendary is that all of his actions have this sort of, you know, it's not just that he fought in battles and distinguished himself well. It's just, you know, almost like superhero level of individual accomplishment. Yeah. Right. That, you know, he just does all of these things on his own. He wasn't there in the fighting when, when Malus died. He went off on his own and did it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And yeah, you can you can see why, you know, I, it, it's rather surprising that it took a while for him to get knighted, uh, you know, to be given uh, a white cloak. Although it's possible, you know, there weren't any vacancies. At the time. Yeah, that's my that's what I would that they guess, may yeah. have, you know, refilled the, the King's Guard after after Summerhall and then just, you know, you got to wait. 
and especially if they refilled it with young people, then it might, <laughs> there would not yeah. be some old guy ready to, you know, like, well, just wait, that guy will be gone soon. So in terms of that, when people speak in awe of Barristan the Bold during his Song of Ice and Fire novels, there's a lot of reasons why. This is a guy, he's not, he's certainly not a one-trick pony, but the slaying of Melis is really what put him on the map. He was kind of notable for entering a tournament at age 10, but that didn't make him famous. That just made him kind of maybe semi-famous amongst the nobility of the Stormlands. It gave him, it, yeah, it, it gave him a nickname. That's as yeah, far as it, it was. was definitely something. He got noted. He was certainly more notable than and just about any other 10-year-old. it was an ironic nickname, too. <laughs> That's true. There's but, like, oh, this punk kid. Who, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Duskendale was also more recent. So that's another thing. It's, it's, it's another reason he thinks of it more. And it's something people remember him for more because it, it happened during a lot more people's lifetimes. I mean, that was 23 years-ish before the, the, or 22 years before the war, be- before the books begin versus this happening 30 some years before the war, uh, before the books begin. I guess 38. Yeah, 38 years. So here's a little tidbit. From a meta perspective, Barrison the Bold was one of the very first characters George R. R. Martin ever created. I don't mean A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, ever, ever. When George R. R. Martin was a freshman at Northwestern, he wrote that King Barristan the Bold was slain by winged demons within the borders of the Dothrak Empire. <laughs> so it's fun to see these elements that George later forged into a much bigger story. But he likes to... He, he gets attached to some of these character names, I think, and likes to recycle them. But yeah, King Barris and the Bold, that's pretty cool. So the death of Melis, it changed everything in an instant. The band of, well, eight now would still want to keep the Stepstones, but Westeros was kind of out of the picture now. They couldn't, mm-hmm. they didn't have a claimant anymore. Yeah. And yeah, that's a huge thing. So on the other hand, the war kept going for six months of hard fighting. It wasn't like they gave up. Again, I think that, that's what gives the sense of like this grinding conflict. Yeah, that, I agree. That's a good point. And the Stepstones being ruled by pirates, that's, that's nothing new then or now. It was the Blackfire King that was the problem. So once Melis is dead, they're like, well, it'd be better if we could clean all this pirate activity up. But honestly, they're not going to attack our continent anymore. So this is no longer our problem. And both sides would know that. So because it was a war of conquest, Without that claim, it's just it. Everybody knows that. So like you said, it was about a half a year before the disputed lands and stepstones were lost. But this was a pretty big domino effect. It was like they, Bailey's dies and it just starts collapsing, right? You just have instant like reversals start happening like immediately. As fast as they got going, it seems like just as fast things started to be undone. Now somehow Aliquo, the silver tongue, despite sacking Tyrosh as part of all this, he held on to Tyrosh for six more years, but was eventually poisoned by his queen. Now, that's got to be an interesting story because surely there was someone influencing her to do that. So maybe she was bribed or... or a faceless man? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's like, a good everyone idea. Everyone thinks that it was his queen, but I didn't was think it about the queen that. under the face? Good point. Yeah, very good point. That's a great idea because they would have the money. Probably for this. <laughs> well, or, or somewhat, you know, I mean, I can definitely imagine there's Sea uh, Lord of Bravos who's like, okay, we need to wrap this shit up. You know, <laughs> yeah. how, how much for this guy? <laughs> you know, can the Iron Bank give us a loan? Let's, let's, let's make this happen. He's wrecking trade everywhere. Like, yeah, just the step, like imagine the impact it would have if the Stepstones were closed off. 
because Bravos wouldn't be able to trade with Volantis or Lease or Karth or the JT. I mean, that's a big deal to a lot of rich people really want this taken care of. <laughs> a lot of rich people really are, are cut off from making more money. And you know what happens when rich people get cut off from their source of wealth? They, they tend to take action. So we don't have a lot of info on what happened to the other seven. Some of them may have been killed. It's entirely yeah. possible, like Spotted Tom the Butcher was killed on the Stepstones as well. We have no idea. Some of them may have just been like, oh, well, that didn't work. Let me go back to being a pirate or back to being a sellsword captain. They may have just entirely gone back yeah, to their I mean, former profession. We know profession. the Sons are still around as, ha, yeah, as good a, point. a significant sellsword fleet. So they, as, as the Sons so often seem to do, they managed to get out of the conflict relatively unscathed, <laughs> having made a profit. True. Somehow, somehow, the Sons are good at that, aren't they? Uh, some of these guys may have burned bridges, muddied the waters, so to speak. Maybe it would be hard for them to get contracts. You might have a situation like the Second Sons in uh, A Song of Ice and Fire proper, where either Barristan or Jorah points out that the reason the Second Sons are all the way in Slaver's Bay is because no one will give them contracts in the free cities anymore because Miro is just so untrustworthy. So you might have that kind of situation. But there would always be work for sellswords because as may, if, they, if they burn bridges... With the free cities, well, there's always the Jade Sea. There's always farther east. There's always people that were not touched by any of this. And there's always people that want to hire killers. So, yeah, they would still be able to find work, but maybe not in the cities that formerly hosted them. Now, here's another quote from Gildane that nah, I'm not so sure he's right about this one. Melis the Monstrous was the fifth and last of the Blackfire pretenders. With his death, the curse that Aegon the Unworthy had inflicted on the Seven Kingdoms by giving his sword to his bastard son was finally ended. Oh, yeah, so not really, though. <laughs> as we know, as any reader of A Song of Ice and Fire knows, there are definitely strong Blackfire vibes still in the books. Young Griff very possibly is a Blackfire, and of course, Illyrio very candidly says the male line was extinguished. So are you, I don't know if I've ever straight up asked you uh, on a stream anyway, do you believe that young Griff is a Blackfire descendant? Yeah, I think with the sword, it's probably the case. Right on. Now, my personal theory is the that Illyrio talks about his lover, Sarah, and who is perhaps the mother of yeah. young Griff. Well, I mean, I have my whole theory about the, the double swap of the babies. So. Yeah. Women who look Targaryen that fall, whose house collapses, in, who live in the free cities, ending up as sex workers, you can see how that would happen. Uh, that's, in fact, what, um, you know, they wanted to take Daenerys and make her into that. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of those, like, gross slavers, they were telling her that would be her fate. Added on to this, we happened to get the chance to ask George R. R. Martin a question every once in a while. Shay and I have been to a lot of Q&As. And one of the questions I asked him was, did Bittersteel ever have kids with Kala Blackfire? If you don't recall Kala, that's the white, that's uh, Damon's eldest daughter. So Damon Blackfire had five sons and so, or seven sons and some number of daughters, at least two. We're not sure how many, but at least two because the plural was used. And the eldest of them was Kala and Kala and Bittersteel were married. But since but George says they did not have kids. Well, he says, I don't think so. So he left the door open in case he changes his mind. But it sounds like no. Uh, there's another theory out there that Varus himself could be a Blackfire orphan, could be 
uh, a descendant of all that. It would explain his softness for noble bastards, but uh, you know the the what happens when a family falls apart like that and they get yeah, tossed out I, on the street. I just I just think he he is who he's his story. Okay, you know certainly Illyrio's story makes him out. Right on. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. I mean, it could, I think both those stories can work together. But yeah, it's we don't really need to get deep into that theory. Certainly, that that's one that one's out there for people to check out. We don't need to debate that here. Um, so let's talk about on the Westerosi side. Victory and new friendships. There's a plenty here. Of course, we talked about Barristan and Blackfish, and we know that Barristan got a, got his job when the next opening presented itself. Iron Islands, closer to being a part of the realm than it ever was. You know, the Iron Islands actually uniting with the rest of the realm to fight a war and then being on the same sides. That's pretty unusual. On the other hand, when Robert's Rebellion broke out, Kellan Greyjoy did not take sides, which I think is quite interesting. Everyone else seems to have immediately had a side to take. They had friendships and relationships, and that really determined what side they were going to take. But it was only because of Balon and Euron arguing, pressing their father to enter the war to take a side that they finally did take a side. They didn't have much of an impact on the war, but they definitively sided with Robert. So you could argue that the Greyjoys weren't exactly embarrassed by him the way Tywin was over Tytos, but they definitely didn't like the way he was ruling the Iron Islands, but he was a powerful man and, and not easy to overcome. So it wasn't until his death that things changed. So this is also a setup for Southern ambitions, of course. I mentioned some of these, these alliances were sort of predetermined. We talked about Hoster Tully and, and Peter Baelish, John Aaron and Rickard Stark. Quite possibly, this is where a lot of this got set up. But and as you said, Tywin and his brothers and, and the Prince Ares at the time, future well, King and, Ares. And uh, Stefan Baratheon. Yeah. I know that the three of them were really close. So that could have been a sort of alternative um, uh, power block forming, but due to various reasons, right? Tywin's sort of love for monopolizing power, Ares's uh, sort of paranoia, it didn't it didn't really shake out that way. Their sort of initial closeness uh, in this era sort of eventually kind of fell apart. Right on. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the setup for the reign Tarbeck revolt, AKA the reigns of cast, what the thing that ended with the reigns of Castamere, what motivated Tywin for all this was, was maybe, do you suppose maybe Tywin Slash Joanna was upset that Jason was killed while Lord Titus stayed home being lazy as he always does. Or maybe people were maybe there were maybe there was a little pride issue on Tywin's side that he was that the Lannisters were outshined by Roger Rain. Or do you think it's just something simpler than that? I mean, I think it it goes back further than that, because like mm. we know that when Tywin was sent off to King's Landing to be a squire and a page and a cupbearer. He had hit his father. Um, oh, yeah. I think like he had already established in his mind from his childhood, right? Well before he, he becomes a fighting age, my father is weak and this situation is unsupportable. And I'm when I get strong enough, I'm going to take action. And it's with the War of, of Nine Penny Kings that he feels that he's strong enough, in part because... He distinguishes himself, his brothers distinguish himself, but we also learn in the extended uh, Westerlands uh, section of World of Ice and Fire that Tywin came back to Casterly Rock with 500 hardened knights, right? So he had his own private army. And yeah. <laughs> where had he got those knights? Well, 
if you are a uh, hedge knight, right, uh, a sworn sword who no longer has a master because the war's over, you're looking for new work. And Tywin's there with all the gold of Casterly Rock saying, come join me. You know, and that's also fairly similar. You know, you see a lot of veterans of World War I found that they sort of liked fighting. Right. So, you know, you're taking all of these veteran soldiers who are like, oh, shit, I've got nothing to do now and saying, hey, kill the people I want you to kill. (laughs) So here's a quote that that really sets up what we're talking about here. Hardened by battle and all too aware of the low regard in which the other lords of the realm held his father, Ser Tywin Lannister set out at once to restore the pride and power of Casterly Rock. Yeah, there's this this line where Jamie is telling Sir Kevin to be careful when he if he's going after Kev, uh, Sandor Clegane, who isn't actually Sandor Clegane. But Kevin kind of looks back at Jamie like, "Are you kidding me? I have been hanging robber knights since before you were born." And it's true. This is this Kevin fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings, and he is a big part of that. This last line here in that quote: Tywin Lannister set out to restore the pride and power of Castle Rock. Titos's rule had allowed the Westerlands to become in a not chaotic but in a state of not it wasn't well managed there were robber knights there were bandits things like that and so this is when kevin talks about he's been hanging knights uh, robber knights and, and bandits since before jamie was born this is what he's talking about this is how he got started so tywin immediately gave kevin a lot of these knights that steven just mentioned and said hey go clean all this up and kevin did it he was very good at it and that's part of why Tywin has always trusted Kevin because Kevin is very competent at things like this. Yeah, he's the loyal soldier. Yeah. That's a really big deal. And like you said also, Stephen, Titus was, was, was kind of weak and Tywin was strong and they disagreed on a lot of things. And this well, just and made it Jason worse. Jason was dead. So there, and Jason there was dead, you're right. sort of strong, older Lannister. It was just these sort of younger men. Yeah, Jason was maybe uh, been a bridge, like a help them kind of relate to each other that was taken yeah. away. That's a great point. And Tywin would be even more different than his father after, like, after this this quote says he was hardened by battle, so he was tough, and then he was tougher, and he was even even more different than his father, and even more willing to to spill some blood. And his father would would still be the way he was. So there, the gap between their attitudes would have widened. I'd say the Nine Penny Kings is an example like very few others. It gives us an example as to how the country reacts in the face of a foreign invasion. Like I said at the beginning, this could be extremely relevant for young Griff, but even more so for Danny, because her army is even more foreign than his. And to many traditionalists in Westeros, the idea of a queen is pretty foreign too. So a lot of things they might uh, that might unite Westeros against her. And maybe that creates new alliances and friendships as these people fight alongside each other. Who knows? Lots of interesting possibilities. So we're going to move into our final, uh, just a few questions and our thanks. But I want to give Stephen a chance to say any last bits that we may have missed or any nope, wrap up we, points we you have. covered all my theories. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, then we have a shout out from Teflon TV, our friend Tony Teflon. Sending a super chat saying, showing some love, peace, and stay sexy. Absolutely. Thanks to you, Tony. Appreciate that. And uh, y'all check out Teflon TV when you get the chance. Good stuff going on over there. Also, a super chat from Nina. Hey, popping in and out. We wanted to give a shout to some of my favorite people in the fandom. Well, thank you for that, Nina. You're one of our favorites, too. So, 
Stephen, what is next for you? We've, we've, we've heard where to find you, but what are you working on next? So I've reached the 50% mark in A Storm of Swords. So I'm taking the time to do some sort of little side essays. Uh, I just did the first Duncan Egg uh, essay about Hedge Knight. I'm going to do one about Sworn Sword. I have uh, the uh, like a, a fanfic, The Hour of the Wolf, that I need to finish up. It's been sort of like incomplete for, for God uh, going on a year or so now. <laughs> um, but I also want to like make a, a dive for uh, the uh, Red Wedding and just like knock a whole bunch of chapters out because I'm not that far off, right? I'm cool. You know, yeah. John, I, I did John five and, you know, the Red Wedding is just like what, you know? Not long after that. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> we're not uh, quite there in Valar. We read us ourselves. We're more, we're yeah, around. So uh, chapter 51. So I've only okay. got 10 chapters to go. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. That'll be big. 11 if a- you include Aria uh, 11 as sort of showing the what's going on outside. Right, right. Yeah, uh, there's, there's so, all those yeah. related chapters close together. Yeah, yeah 10 nice. chapters. That's not very far. So cool. Well, that's great. Looking forward to that then. Uh, thanks also to Ashea for there were, we had some, she managed some difficult technical stuff today. There's always uh, something to, to worry about and she's always on top of that. Appreciate that so much. And reading quotes and managing the chat all at the same time when people say Ashea is the best. Well, that's not hyperbole. Also, thanks to Michael Clarfeld for our music, finding our music through Kevin McLeod and our maps and the video intro that we have for all of our episodes. Very awesome. Check him out at claradox.de. That's with a K. Also, thanks to Jesse Kowal and Joey Townsend for our intro outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for audio editing assistance. And thanks to everyone who came live. You guys had a great, looks like the chat was booming as it often is. Lots of great questions were coming out. Lots of curiosities and related topics to the Nine Penny Kings and all these different characters that were, some of them we only briefed, touched, touched on briefly. So you can't really, we can't do deep dives on characters that are only barely part of this, but people in the chat can do whatever they want and talk about those things. So a lot of times really good side discussions happen on there. <laughs> And thanks to everyone who likes and shares History of Westeros podcast, as well as liking and sharing Race for the Iron Throne. And let me do some patron shout outs as we say goodbye to y'all. And we'll see you hopefully for Valar Reredus on Sunday, or if not, a future live stream or game stream. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, thanks to the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best. Also, make sure to check out the Here Be Dragons show. That's his every Sunday after Valar Reredus. They, they have a variety of great things from Game of Thrones talk to Expanse to they talk about the Oscars. They talk about uh, different superheroes. Lots of just great topics, but my favorite is when they talk about the Expanse. But hey, they do lots of things well. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister is the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Daemon. He does not understand all this bickering over the Stepstones. If he were to come for the Stepstones, they would be his in a short order. 
King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse is the fallborn Lord of Blue Spring in the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of Dragonglass and the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Frost. He says, send Blackfire up there to him. He could make much better use of it than those silly Blackfires themselves. Lady Sarah Connolly the Willful is, says, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, and she is Jenny's patron. Our White Walker patrons include Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes, and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood is first of the first men, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the Ice Ford Greatsword, Pale Frost. Our small council includes Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, and Lord Johan of House Orcos is called Shadowhawk. He's Master of Whispers. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Hill of the Halls, rather, of Castle Hillcrust is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snuggle Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood, Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snuggle Bunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolf's Wood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island, Wolf Island, excuse me, is Protectress of the Steelhold. Lady Casey Stark of, I'm sorry, Casey Stark is of House Acres. There's no lady attached to that. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolf's Wood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direween. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Blood Raven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castlestone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mara of House Stark is Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Queen's High Council is Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In these shadows, we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim is Master of Coin. Grand Maester Elizabeth is middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link. You, you could tell yourself that the Queen's High Council was all getting ready for our meeting in uh, about five minutes. <laughs> no, in actuality, I just wasn't ready. <laughs> and Laura Boros is the Lady of Infinity, Master of Laws. Our King's Guard, led by Lord Commander Miriam R, backed by Sir Glennon of House Leanne, called Lion Cloak, longest tenured white sword, Sir Dean, the White Knight of the Black Star, Sir Jord of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight, Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell, Sir Jen Seaworth, Knight of the Southern Snows, and Lisa, Water Witch of Dorne. Our Red Wedding Band is led by Sir Newt of the Rock, wielding Dweamer Note, Dweamer Note, rather, <laughs> a, we- a werewood lute with Valyrian steel strings. Our Queen's Guard, is, should I read that one? Or you, yeah. You, okay. Uh, Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth is the sellsword sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, is first blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades, fire and ice, and the werewood bow rain. Amber the adamant, the knight of the mist and mother of squids. The wintry wolverine motto, we finish what you begin. And Nora Neko. 
Our beard guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed by Sir Joshua Oakhart the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Mane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum red and brown. Stay frosty. Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. A few recent joiners. Real quick. Yeah. Why don't we have a cat guard? A cat guard? Mm. Yeah, I thought of it because the big reason I'm distracted is I have Xerxes just walling around on me. That's a pretty good idea. I bet some people would join the cat guard. I don't know if it has to be a cat guard. It could be a cat (laughs) something. Well, something to do with cats, yeah. Exactly, but, uh, you know, tell us your suggestion. (laughs) Xerxes wants, I don't know, the cat mistress I, I don't know he wants love he doesn't need guarding is my point he wants just love and affection <laughs> and treats yeah. yeah we also have uh sir Mikkel of house redwood wielder of the valyrian steel blade forest fire and a redwood longbow reese the renewer the lady of ash and rebirth archmaster austin whose ring and rod mask are made of oily black stone that's cool maester lucius of the alluvia lady kelly mistress of the old bay of crabs Bull Weir the Purple of Heavenly Mythhead House Taurus, Ricky Alebelly of House Bell, motto Ring the Bell, House Azura of Elsewhere, Touch Not a Cat But a Barge, Justin the Patcher called Salty Justin, Healer of Salt Shore, and last but not least, the History of Westeros Night's Watch, led by Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant Wielder of uh, the Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss, First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire and the Snow. First Ranger Source, Sir Delica of House Gramercy. And a couple others like Sleepless Jacob Snow, the Celtic Hedge Knight, Eater of the Salmon of Knowledge, Sir Adam the Loyal, and Lady Estrada of the Green, Wielder of Rose's Kiss, dual-crossed Valyrian Steel Blades. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks again to Stephen and Shea and everybody who came live. We'll see you again soon. Valar Rerius.